0: Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, everyone, wherever you are in this world. Laszlo Montgomery back again, as promised, with another CHP episode. Part 6 today of our epic overview of the history of Chinese philosophy. Last week, we were in the Han Dynasty. Today, we retrace our steps backward along the China history timeline and return to the 6th century BCE to look at Laozi, Zhuangzi, and the teachings of Taoism. Will Durant said it best when he said Lao Tzu, the greatest of the pre Confucian philosophers, knew the wisdom of silence, and lived, we may be sure, to a ripe old age, though we are not sure he lived at all. Tradition, which knows everything, credits him with his book, the Tao Te Jing and his name Lao Tzu, neither of which may have belonged to him. End quote. And from a historical point of view, that nearly sums it up as far as who Laozi was. His short work, the Tao Te Ching, also called the Laozi, has to be attributed to someone. Someone had to conveniently exist who could be quoted and referred to. The Laozi of the ancient classics could have been an amalgamation of several people who yielded all this wisdom over time. If they were one person, well, it's still hard to say if the words we read today, many of us in translation are from this person from 2,600 years ago. And as we all discussed in previous episodes, those days when Lao Tzu was around, the Chinese political entity was hardly what it used to be, things were so bad that there were people who embraced the thought that, well, maybe it was best to just escape from the danger, return to nature, and live like a hermit or recluse, forget about society and order and... Etiquette, not under these conditions. It was better to get away from all the madness, live a life of simplicity, out in nature, acting naturally, not constrained by anyone's rules, and to look out for oneself. People who thought this way? These were Taoism's initial core customers. In discussing Lao Tzu's biography, I hate to say it, but... Again, this is one of those thank God for Sima Qian kind of things. The Record of the Grand Historian. We have to hang our hat once again on that ancient work written during the Han Dynasty. It states Lao Tzu came from Chu, which tells you a little bit right there. Chu country was Hubei. Back in those days, they had a different culture than what was going on in and around the Yellow River and all its tributaries. The Chu people were very spiritual living where they did, along the Yangtze River, south of the core ancient Huaxia Chinese civilization, all along the Yellow River. Tradition says Laozi's surname was Li, and his full name was Li Ar. His courtesy name was Dan, so he's also referred to as Li Dan. Laozi itself just means old master. Here in Tinseltown, we also know him as Lao Tzu, although he was famous for his contempt of government. Lao Tzu still earned his daily rice from the Zhou ruling family, working as a historiographer in the Zhou royal archives. If you recall from that Part 3 episode, Confucius visited Lao Tzu once in an official capacity. I told you that story. So we know from the reply he gave to Confucius that Lao Tzu was already the feisty, contemptuous old chap that he's often portrayed as. Confucius makes several mentions of meeting a Lao Tan Some people believe he was referring to the philosopher known as Lao Tzu, and that his surname was Lao, not Li. But that shall remain a mystery. The rest of Lao Tzu's story, according to tradition anyway, goes something like this. He was still working his job in Luoyang as a curator at the Royal Zhou Library, when one day he just up and left. So disturbed and revolted had he become in the way society and government had deteriorated. I mean, these were the times of the Zhou kings Ling and Jing. Laozi decided he had had enough, so he hit the road on the back of an ox, if you believe Sima Qian. And as the story goes, he headed in a westerly direction towards the outer frontiers of Zhou dynasty China. And as he got to the very last stop before one left what was considered Zhongguo or China the guardian of the gate, a gentleman by the name of Yin Shi, recognized Lao Tzu. As you recall from Confucius' reaction from meeting Lao Tzu, the old master was already quite a celebrity in his day, and because of this, his fame had preceded his arrival at the frontier gate. Lao Tzu informed Yin Shi, he had had enough. He's given up on all the wickedness and brutality of the times, and was just going to wander the western regions and live like a hermit. Yin Shi said to Laozi, Wait, before you go, Laozi, please write down for future generations the encapsulation of your teachings. That wasn't a direct quote. Laozi sat down and in one stream of consciousness wrote out 5,000-plus characters containing the essence of his thought, which would, later on during the Han Dynasty, come to be called Taoism, Tao Jia. When he was finished, he handed this... 81 chapter, first edition to Yin Shi, and that, my friends, was the Tao Te Ching, Lao Tzu's antidote to cure all of society's ills and for people to live peacefully and naturally in harmony with nature. And then, as legend has it, Lao Tzu departed and was never heard from again. What year was this? Eh, no one knows for sure, but it's estimated to be around the 530s BCE. Cyrus the Great in Persia, and the time of the Buddha in India. Speaking of the former Siddhartha Gautama, there are stories that, well, since the years sort of add up, fictional though they may be, some wrote that after Lao Tzu handed over the Tao Te Ching to Yinshi, he turned south and went straight to India. No one could say for sure if he did or he didn't, but it's said he ran into the Buddha. Just saying. So that is the historical fiction version of the life of Lao Tzu. Let us now try to unravel the meaning of the Tao Te Ching and the early history of Taoism. The Taoism of Lao Tzu's age, which, as I just mentioned, wasn't even called Taoism yet, was not exactly as the Taoism that was later practiced in the Han, and for sure not in the later Han. Taoism is called one of the two indigenous religions of China, Confucianism being the other one, of course, but we're not going to concern ourselves much with Taoism the religion or Tao Jiao. We're only looking at the philosophy. Tao Jia. Taoism the religion, Taoism the philosophy. Not the same. And of course, I mentioned before, you could hardly call Confucianism a religion in the sense you can call Hinduism, Islam, or Christianity a religion. Tao means way. Actually, it means a lot of things, but for our purposes, it means way, or road, or path. The Dao isn't the same as the forces of yin and yang, but they go hand in hand. The opening lines of the Dao Te Ching in describing what the Dao is doesn't offer you too much hope of learning its meaning. It comes straight out and says, mere mortals cannot fathom its meaning. It is beyond words. You cannot name it. You could try to name it, call it the Dao, call it whatever you want, but that name doesn't describe it. And even if you think you have it figured out, let me assure you, you don't. The Dao is the origin and source of existence. If that helps you out, Lao Tzu himself said, quote, he who knows the Dao does not speak. He who speaks of the Dao does not know. End quote. He believed silence and wisdom went hand in hand. Wisdom? Laozi thought, was not transmitted by words, but instead by example and experience. The Tao Te Ching is the guide that helps to explain this mysterious and cosmic power that's present in all natural things. It offers a primer on the proper conduct individuals should undertake in order to get it right. There are plenty of bad guys in Taoism. Intellectuals are not admired, unlike Confucianism. Taoists believe to be educated and a scholar is completely of no use. In fact, Taoism considers the learned man a detriment to the state, since he thinks in legalist principles that go completely against natural freedoms. And these legalist principles, they suppress humankind rather than benefit us. Where legalism was concerned, Taoism purported that people are originally good, and they espoused absolute individual freedom. Legalism, on the other hand, said people are originally bad and required total social control. So being a Taoist, living under a legalist state ideology, must have been torture. Taoists believed philosophic thought itself was superficial. They saw it useful for causing arguments and creating deceptions. Taoists rejected that and idealized the simplicity of the Shang and early Zhou days and abhorred what China had become during the Eastern Zhou, children were idealized for their innocence, and the idea of acquiring knowledge was looked down on. They said the Tao is to be found by rejecting the intellect in all its wares and living a modest life of retirement and rusticity and quiet contemplation of nature. Lao despaired that people had lost their, de, their virtue because they had too many desires and too much knowledge. Knowledge is in itself an object of desire. It enables people to know more about more objects of desire and then serves as a means to gain these objects. As knowledge increases, so does one's desires. Lao had no use for this. He must have hated his job at the Zhou Imperial Library. The Taoist view was that everything was fine when times were simple, before the days when humans attained certain knowledge, and began organizing societies, instituting laws, and building cities. Taoists believed a perfect world was one where people never interfered with nature or used their intelligence or power to, as uh, Ned Beatty so eloquently put it, back in the 1976 film Network, meddle with the primal forces of nature. Lao Tzu's recommended solution to all the corruption and violence of the Eastern Zhou was to return to a time that was, although relatively primitive, was populated by human beings who would stand apart from all the corrupting influences of culture, literature, urbanization, laws, and all the advances in the arts and sciences. Nature, in the Taoist sense, means natural activity. How everything flows in nature, all the seasonal cycles, the stars, the moon, the rainy season, the dry season, everything that is of nature, Taoism embraces all of that, unreservedly. One of the holy grails of Taoism is to truly understand this nature, and the only way to understand it is to flow with it. Well, how you flow with it, well, that's where Taoism gets very, very... Intricate and complex. Lao Tzu said you needed to know the laws of nature and conduct yourself in accordance with these natural laws, because all the laws of nature were connected and formed the substance of all reality, the so-called absolute. Will Durant called Taoism, quote, "...a stoic obedience to nature, an abandonment of all artifice and intellect, a trustful acceptance of nature's imperatives in instinct and feeling." A modest imitation of nature's silent ways. It's all about quiescence, being quiet, inactive, dormant, refusing to interfere with the natural course of things, the mark of a wise person. Practicing Taoism is all about this the Tao invariably does nothing, and yet there is nothing that is not done. Sounds simple, but it isn't. The concept of quiescence and going with the flow in Chinese also has a name. And this is called wu-wei. If you look up wu-wei in a Chinese dictionary, it says inaction. Wu-wei is a hard one to understand and get your arms around, especially in this 21st century hyper-materialist world we live in. To practice wu-wei in everything you do, which is what Lao essentially calls for, you achieve action through inaction. If you think this Wu Wei advocates getting stoned and sitting on the couch all day watching TV, it's not that kind of inaction. It's more a kind of acting completely natural. Not willfully. You're in tune with your surroundings and all the chi that surrounds you and is within you. Wu Wei has also been defined as perfect harmony between one's inner dispositions and their external movements in a natural, spontaneous, and unselfconscious way. It's not just about living like a recluse in nature. By practicing Wu Wei, you can utilize the power of emptiness, detachment, receptiveness, spontaneity. Wu Wei touches on all of this. Wu Wei, being one with the Tao, all these ideas also extended to governing. The Tao Te Ching is peppered with words describing how a proper ruler should act. The people are wholly taken care of in every respect and are kept orderly and peaceful. Yet the ruler does nothing to force this to happen. The Taoists thought the Confucianists were crazy, trying to impose all this order on forces beyond their control. You know, they developed this ideal person, in the Taoist sense, that is, who is fit to rule, who follows the Tao, and has achieved shunren or perfected person status but chooses to live apart from society and live a life of simplicity here's an everyday example of how something is viewed through a Taoist pair of glasses let's say you're walking down melrose avenue and you find someone's wallet on the street there's no looking inside to see how much is in there should i keep it return it There's none of this weighing the situation or imagining what the payoff might be if you return this wallet you found to its rightful owner. Lao Tzu would say, without thinking, your natural concern is to find the owner of this wallet. In the true Taoist sense, this should be your natural course of action you take. But as soon as you start thinking about potential benefits, or acting righteously, or calling this an act of returning the wallet the righteous thing to do, You label your actions, and now they become phony and artificial, being done for a reason rather than as a natural course of action, the Taoist way. Taoism also warns against the self-defeating consequences of being aggressive, proactive, and assertive in trying to get your way or to act in any way that can be construed to be, you know, self-aggrandizing, no matter if you're a nation, an army, or just an individual member of the human race. To quote Lao Tzu, or what Lao Tzu was purported to have said, if you do not quarrel, no one on earth will be able to quarrel with you. Recompense injury with kindness. To those who are good, I am good. And to those who are not good, I am also good. The softest thing in the world dashes against and overcomes the hardest. There is nothing softer or weaker than water. And yet for attacking things that are firm and strong, there is nothing that could take precedence of it. End quote. Taoism calls for people to embrace a world of simplicity and silence. Wisdom in the Taoist sense isn't read in books or communicated by speech. A true follower of Taoism holds riches and power as unimportant. In short, it totally and wholeheartedly embraces a simple life. And 2,500 years ago, it was, well, it was only natural that people in general were less removed from nature than we are today in the 21st century. Living in tune with nature was more fresh in the memories and traditions of Zhou Dynasty Chinese than in these modern times. So when all of a sudden Taoist beliefs became more widespread and popularized, Taoism acted as a kind of black hole, where these thousand-year-old or more folk traditions from the Shang Dynasty and earlier just gravitated towards that force and became one with it. When we talk about Taoism, the two central characters are Laozi, who we already mentioned, and Zhuangzi. The two essential works of Taoism are the Tao Te Ching and the Zhuangzi. Zhuangzi being the name of the philosopher credited with writing it, as well as the name of the work. Laozi is considered the founder, and Zhuangzi is considered the greatest disciple or person who best articulated what Taoism was all about. Zhuangzi was born 160 years after the legendary date of Laozi's passing. And time moved a lot slower back then than it does now. Or maybe it felt that way. Let's look at the Tao De Jing. It's divided up into the classic of Dao, the Tao Jing, that's chapters 1 through 37, and the classic of virtue, the De Jing. The book is chock full of aphorisms. Like Confucianism... Daoism considers an ideal person to be a sage, a shengren, or, or better yet, a perfected person, a junren. If you read through the Tao Te Ching, it gives you example after example of explanations how you too can achieve this status. A Confucian sage is someone who attained the highest ethical standards of benevolence and righteousness, the highest state a ruler can attain. But a Taoist sage is someone who fully embraces the Tao in every way. In order to be one with the universe, a Taoist sage has to transcend and forget distinctions between things. The way to do this is to do something anathema to Confucianists. Discard knowledge. Discarding knowledge is a method used by Taoists to achieve sageliness within. Lao Tzu said, quote, The sage ruler rules the people by emptying their minds, filling their bellies, weakening their wills, toughening their sinews, ever making the people without knowledge and without desire. Xunzi pointed a finger at the Taoists and accused them of being blinded by nature and that they had no knowledge of man. As far as all this Confucian teaching about cultivating one's own benevolence, righteousness, virtue, propriety, Taoists reject that outright. To carry out the act of trying to be virtuous? It was phony, artificial, and forced. It was anything but natural. The Tao Te Ching has been studied to death. And everyone agrees it was neither written by one person, nor at one single time. In other words, like almost all these Eastern Zhou era classics, undue credit is given to one person. I mean, that sure makes for a tidy and easy to open package. The early champion of the Tao Te Ching was Wang Bi. He lived during the Han, not for a very long time either, from 226 to 249. He wasn't a Taoist, but he did write these earliest of commentaries on the Tao Te Ching that became de rigueur for any future scholar of Taoism. And his writings had a lot of lasting power too. Wang Bi's commentaries are still referenced today in the 21st century. Han fei by the way, also devoted a couple chapters in his work where he discussed lao and the Tao Te Ching. In 1993, in Guodian village near Jingmen in Hubei, west of Wuhan, the oldest copy of the Tao Te Ching was found that was dated to somewhere around 300 BCE. So we know for sure this book goes back to at least the 4th century BCE, a good 200 years after Lao Tzu's legendary time walking this earth. Two copies of the Tao Te Ching were amongst the silk texts discovered at Ma Wang I've mentioned Ma Wang in a few episodes. This tomb from the Han Dynasty was found intact, 2nd century BCE, a little later than the Guodian texts unearthed in 1993. It maybe didn't have the hoopla and backstory that preceded the discovery of the tomb of King Tutankhamen in November 1922. But this Ma Wang discovery, made 50 years after Howard Carter's discovery in the world of Chinese culture and history, it was pretty big, man. These two versions of the Dao Te Jing discovered in the Han era tomb were not the same as the long accepted Wang Bi version. What was pulled out of Ma Wang were texts that used a different structure to order the chapters of the Tao Te Jing, And this was called Huang Lao Taoism. The easiest way to differentiate Huang Lao Taoism from the one we are all most familiar with, Lao Zhuang Taoism, well, Huang Lao is considered more religious in nature. Lao Zhuang Taoism is the more philosophical form of Taoism that has the works of Lao Zi and Zhuangzi at its core. Huang Lao stands for Huang Di and Lao Tzu. Huangdi being the Yellow Emperor, who, I have it on good authority, didn't get too personally involved in the writing of the text. And this Huanglao Taoism actually came out during the Han Dynasty, centuries after the earliest known version of the Tao Te Ching. Let's talk about Zhuangzi for a bit. The Zhuangzi is sometimes referred to as the second book of the Tao. The Tao Te Ching and the Zhuangzi are the two core books that make up the earliest works of Taoism. For Lao Zhuang Daoism, these are the holiest of holies. Zhuangzi lived around 369 to 286 BCE. This puts him smack dab in the middle of the Warring States period. He was born Zhuangzhou. Zhou was his given name, as the story goes. He came from Song State, present-day Anhui Province, from the town of Mengcheng. We know about Zhuangzi the same way we know about Laozi. Who else but Sima Qian and his Shiji, or Records of the Grand Historian? Sima Qian said that Zhuangzi worked in a so-called lacquer garden, but there's no explanation as to exactly what a lacquer garden was. He completely rejected a life in government, despite his renown as a respected wise man of letters. Zhuangzi was a younger contemporary of Mengzi, although neither one mentions the other in their work. Confucius had already been gone for a century by the time Zhuangzi came along. So you could see, although Taoism got the initial head start, it wasn't by much. And what happens is, these two philosophies and religions, Taoism and Confucianism, sort of grow up and evolve in China, side by side, century after century. Each in their own time became political forces at the highest levels of power. Sometimes the two political rivals, the Confucianists and Daoists, sometimes they got along, sometimes they didn't. The great work that Zhuangzi is credited with writing, or at least partially writing, had a total of 33 chapters broken down into three parts. It's the first part, the first seven chapters, that are specifically credited to Master Zhuang. These are known as the inner chapters, the Pian. The next 15 are known as the outer chapters. The Wai Pian and the Balance 11 are known as the mixed chapters. It's said Zhuangzi himself wrote the inner chapters, and his disciples wrote the outer chapters, and the mixed ones were written by various others. Scholars generally agree. The inner chapters, those first seven, were written by a single person. Now, whether or not it was Zhuangzi's own brushstrokes that wrote the original, still open for debate like just about everything from these ancient days? Who knows? As with the Dal Te Jing and the Yi Jing, you don't have to read the Zhuangzi in any particular order. It's a mishmash of wisdom, and you could pick it up and read random passages of stories and sayings, and eh, maybe it speaks to you, maybe it doesn't. It's certainly quite relatable, if you're open-minded, that is. The various chapters more or less fall into one of three categories. The first involves stories where Zhuangzi spars verbally with his sidekick, Hui Shi, a noted sophist of his day. What you get are all these Abbott and Costello debates between Hui Shi and Zhuangzi, where Zhuangzi turns logic on its head. Or the stories have to do with his well-known contempt and disdain for governments of all kinds. Or the stories often concern themselves with matters of death as a part of the universal process. Here's one of my favorites, Hui Shi and Zhuangzi were out taking a little stroll, and just as they came to a little bridge that ran over a stream, they paused. Zhuangzi sighed and uttered, Out swim the minnows so free and easy. This is the happiness of fish. Hui Shi replied, You are not a fish. Whence do you know the happiness of fish? Zhuangzi replied, You are not me. Whence do you know I don't know the happiness of fish? Hui Shi replied, Granted that I am not you, I don't know about you, then granted that you are not a fish. The case for your not knowing the happiness of fish is complete. Zhuangzi replied, Let's trace back to the root of the issue. When you said, Whence do you know the fish are happy? You asked me already knowing I knew it. So it was a lot of stuff like this. Very witty and sometimes downright hilarious. Hui shi, also called Hui zi, sort of gets partially... Pigeonholed in the Taoist category, Sima Tan calls him a prominent member of the school of names, Ming these Sophists I told you about in a previous episode. Deng Xi was one example. So so despised by the Ru School of Philosophers these Ming thinkers were. Hui Zhe is mentioned several times and not only the Zhuangzi, but the Xunzi and other works too. Sima Tan said of the school of names, quote. They conducted minute examinations of trifling points in complicated and elaborate statements, which made it impossible for others to refute their ideas, End quote. The school of names was the philosophy that wanted to explore what lies beyond shapes and features. And for this, they made contributions to early Taoist thought. They were the first to discover the concept of what lies beyond shapes and features as opposed to that which lies within shapes and features. Things that could be named, what most people are familiar with. The concrete versus the abstract. The universal lies beyond shapes and features and is abstract, unnameable. The dull is nameless. That's why it's so hard to describe. The Zhuangzi, from a Chinese translation point of view, is not an easy nut to crack. It's filled with all kinds of fanciful words and has all kinds of fun with chinese characters which are the stuff of double entendres and playful meanings that are sometimes impossible to translate with certainty like any literature it's really not the same when you're reading it in translation so many subtleties of chinese language are impossible to put into the words of another language it's both literature and philosophy all at the same time and it's written in the form of short stories, dialogues, and verse, with most of the stories featuring Zhuangzi himself. I've read it. I've read it in translation. It wasn't written in convenient vernacular Chinese, not that that would have been any easier for me. Every single one of these philosophic works, without exception, are written in the classical Chinese script, and a good amount of nutrition is lost in the translation process, Let's just look at some of the passages of the Zhuangzi. I'll read two or three, and if you never read it before, eh, you'll get it. I guess perhaps the most famous passage is in the outer chapters. Chapter 14, to be exact. This concerns a dream that Zhuangzi had. And this is like his signature passage from the Zhuangzi that you'll read most often. It went like this, quote, Formerly, I, Zhuangzhou, dreamt that I was a butterfly. A butterfly flying about, feeling that it was enjoying itself. I did not know that it was Joe. Suddenly I awoke and was myself again, the veritable Joe. I did not know whether it had formerly been Joe dreaming that he was a butterfly, or it was now a butterfly dreaming that it was Joe. But between Joe and a butterfly, there must be a difference. This is the case of what is called the transformation of things. End quote. This sort of gives you a little taste of Zhuangzi. His writing is sometimes irreverent, but almost always skeptical, believing nothing and questioning every kind of accepted belief about life, death, good and bad. It's filled with fables and stories that stimulate your mind to rethink some things and laugh at some of the reasoning behind accepted beliefs. It attempts to answer questions that are both philosophical, and intellectual. Here's a couple passages from the Zhuangzi that give you an idea how he keeps pounding home the message. Don't be so sure what you know is right. Quote, Consider Cripple Shu. His chin is down by his navel. His shoulders stick up above his head. The bones at the base of his neck point to the sky. The five pipes of his spine are on top. His two thighs form ribs. Yet by sewing and washing, he is able to fill his mouth. By shaking the fortune-telling sticks, he earns enough to feed ten. When the authorities draft soldiers, a cripple can walk among them confidently, flapping his sleeves. When they are conscripting work gangs, cripples are excused because of their infirmity. When the authorities give relief grain to the ailing, a cripple gets three measures along with bundles of firewood. Thus, one whose form is crippled can nurture his body and live out the years heaven grants him. Think what he could do if his virtue was crippled too. End quote. Another passage from the Zhuangzi goes like this. Quote, "'Root of heaven roamed on the south side of Mount Vast. When he came to the banks of Clare Stream, he met Nameless Man and asked him, "'Please tell me how to manage the world.' Go away, you dunce, Nameless Man said. Such questions are no fun. I was just about to join the Creator of Things, and if I get bored with that, I'll climb on the bird merges with the sky and soar beyond the six directions. I'll visit nothing whatever town and stay in boundless country. Why do you bring up managing the world to disturb my thoughts? Still, Root of Heaven repeated his question, and Nameless Man responded. Let your mind wander among the insipid. Blend your energies with the fearless. Spontaneously accord with things, and you will have no room for selfishness. Then the world will be in order. End quote. One more, and then we'll move on. Quote, when Zhuangzi was about to die, his disciples wanted to bury him in a well appointed tomb. Zhuangzi said, I have the sky and the earth for inner and outer coffins, the sun and the moon for jade discs, the stars for pearls, and the ten thousand things for farewell gifts. Isn't the paraphernalia for my burial adequate without adding anything? Oh, but we are afraid the crows and kites will eat you, master, a disciple said. Well, above ground I will be eaten by crows and kites, below ground by ants. You are robbing from one to give to the other. Why play favorites? End quote. Yeah, Zhuangzi, he was quite the character. But despite that quirkiness, the government was always trying to recruit him. There's a part in this shir ji that goes like this. When a couple officials from Luoyang came down on a recruiting mission to snag Zhuangzi, he snapped back at them, quote, Go away quickly and do not soil me with your presence. I would rather amuse and enjoy myself in a filthy ditch than be subject to the rules and restrictions in the court of a sovereign. End quote. Zhuangzi most definitely parted ways with Confucius in his contempt for government. Those sage kings so loved and revered by Confucius, Zhuangzi said about them, The Golden Age, which preceded the earliest kings, had no government, and Yao and Shun, instead of being so honored by Confucius, should be charged with having destroyed the primitive happiness of mankind by introducing government. In the age of perfect virtue... Men lived in common with birds and beasts and were on terms of equality with all creatures as forming one family. How could they know among themselves the distinctions of superior men and small men? End quote. Taoism, as a philosophic thought and as a religion by the Han Dynasty, gave rise to a whole number of Taoist sects that appeared on the scene, all having the name, you know, the way of... Something or other way of this or way of that way means Dao, So you know, it was always you know the something or other dull. Also around the Han, that was when the feng shui business really took off. These feng shuiers were these Taoist practitioners of alchemy, astrology, divination, feng shui, necromancy, and all the different manners of magic and numerology. If you needed to exorcise a ghost. You call your local fang shi. Confucianism wasn't the only thing that had a splendiferous time under Emperor Wu of Han. Taoism, too, and these fang shis, they, too, really had it good. Emperor Han Wudi patronized them like crazy. It was a generous sponsor to promote the study and compilation of Taoist teachings. A lot of the practices of some of these fang shis were absorbed into some of these different Taoist sects. So it's during the Han, the Western Han, two hundred six B.C.E. to eight C.E., that's where these fangshu's first begin to appear with greater frequency than before, and these Taoist practices and also bits and pieces of the I Ching commingled with many of these ancient folk rituals that went back as far as the Zhou and even the Shang. So Taoism, by the Han Dynasty, especially after Sima Tan named it the Tao De School had taken on a shape that was much more approachable to the people. By the end of the Han dynasty, it'll get juiced up with all kinds of traditions, beliefs, and gods of every kind imaginable. And then Zhang Daoling will come around in 142 AD, during the period of the Eastern Han, and Taoism will become a full-fledged religion, competing with the best of them. And during the Eastern Han, Lao Tzu will be given divine status for the first time by the emperor. So, imagine the possibilities. Also, towards the latter part of the Han, you had the appearance of what was called Neo-Daoism. I don't want to get into too much detail, except I did want to at least mention this before we close things out for this episode. Neo-Daoism is also called Xuanxue. Now, Plico calls Xuanxue dark learning, a mystical school developed in the 3rd and 4th centuries characterized by metaphysical speculations seeking to adapt Taoist theories to a Confucian milieu. End quote. These xuanxue thinkers, Wang Bi, we mentioned him, Guo Xiang, Xiangxiu, and others as well, took the two holy books of Taoism, the Laozi and the Zhuangzi, and explained them in a different way. And this interpretation of the two books, at that time at least, made perfect sense. And these two... Guo Xiang and Xiang they were equally adept at using their understanding of these works to tweak it in very subtle ways, so that it would become recognizable and relatable to anything Confucian. It was Guo Xiang, by the way, who is given credit for determining the order for the thirty-three chapters of the Zhuangzi. These Shenshu scholars of this. Mystical dark school took all that Taoism and Confucianism and didn't so much bring it to a new level as much as they let it down a different path. These Guoxiang Xiang and Wang Bi commentaries of the Tao De Jing and the Zhuangzi made Taoism current and in tune with the latest sophistication and philosophic thought that was achieved by the end of the Eastern Han. It's worth noting that all these xuanxue-minded scholars and their dark, mysterious, mystical ways began thriving at the very same time that Taoism, the religion, was ramping up. Zhang Daoling had passed in 156, and all his disciples had had plenty of time to get the word out about this new but familiar religion that also used the accepted Taoist canon and the almighty I Ching and a whole host of gods and spirits. I mean, that was the easiest sell imaginable amongst the Lao Shing. In general, these Xianxue, or Neo-Daoist scholars, share in common an effort to reinterpret aspects of Confucianism in ways to make it more compatible with Taoism. Wang Bi and Guo Xiang were the biggest names in this so-called Neo-Daoist movement. Guo Xiang's commentary on the Zhuangzi, I mean, that's called as great an achievement as the actual book itself. Not only did Guo Xiang offer the most respected commentary on what Zhuangzi actually wrote, he also added some of his own interpretations, like Confucianism and Buddhism too. What was originally received from the most ancient sources, it continued to evolve. And every once in a while, some commentary on the work would come along and offer some new insight that made complete sense. I haven't said too much, if anything, about Buddhism. I I said at the outset I was going to try and not get bogged down in that topic. But it's important to know the Buddhist religion and the philosophy that the religion spawned was also changing and evolving. And as we finish off the Han Dynasty, we can see that these big three, Confucianism, Taoism, Buddhism... They will start to commingle, find commonalities, start having some overlap, and this will open up entire new vistas that Confucius, Laozi, or Zhuangzi never could have imagined in their lifetimes. In episodes to follow, we'll look at this in more detail, especially when we look at Neo-Confucianism. So these three religions and philosophies will sample each other's content as history unfolds. The political animals amongst the Taoist crowd would, from time to time throughout Chinese imperial history, be favored by the occasional emperor or empress. For example, we'll see during the Tang Dynasty, Taoism really struck gold. And during the great Emperor Shenzong's time, it even became the official state religion of China. The great Shenzong Emperor, he of the Yang Kuifei fame, He was a very big-time Taoist. He did for Taoism what Dong Zhongshu did for Confucianism. During his reign, Xuanzong ordered all the various Taoist sects and movements to be combined under a single Taoist umbrella. This was in the 8th century. And even at the earliest moment when the Tang was being founded, the founder, Li Yuan, to sort of puff himself up and add to his legitimacy, claimed he was a descendant of Lao Tzu. Remember, they both had the Li surname. If you remember from an earlier podcast, the Empress Wu Zetian, she was the only exception to the Tang rulers. She was a devout Buddhist and embraced Buddhism over Taoism. Other than the period when she held power, the Tang dynasty belonged to the Taoists as far as who held the most sway at the Tang Imperial Court. It was around 400 AD or thereabouts that the first Daozang was compiled. The Daozang, this was a collection, an official collection of everything there was that was ever written or had something to do with Daoism. The first time they did this, there were about 1,200 scrolls of Taoist wisdom, including, of course, the Laozi, Zhuangzi, and the Liezi, too, which is also sort of, but not really considered a Taoist text. When Taoism was enjoying its heyday under Xuanzong during the Tang, for a second time in 748, a new official Tao Zhang was compiled. Then in 1016, during the Song, the third Daozang came out, which improved on the second and culled it of many texts found out of step with the times, or commentaries from thinkers that were playing too loose and fast with the words of the ancients. And then in 1444, during the Ming Dynasty, we have the last version of the Daozang, and by then there's about 5,000 scrolls that make up this final version of Taoism's most sacred and important texts. Okay. I know I didn't dump a lot of actual Taoist thought and analysis on you. I'm trying to focus more on the history. I hope that you got the main idea. We'll keep coming back to Taoist philosophy in the coming episodes. Part 7 next time. We still have all the history that followed the fall of the Han. A rough time in China. The Eastern Han fell in 220. It was followed by the Three Kingdoms period, 220 to 280, then the Jin, and after the Jin bites the dust in 420, comes the Northern and Southern dynasties, 420 to 589. This is also called the Six Dynasties period. Finally, when the Sui comes along, 589, order is restored, at least for a while. And no matter how terrible things got in China, philosophers kept on doing their thing. What that was exactly... Come back next time and find out. Laszlo Montgomery here, signing off from somewhere in the city of Los Angeles, the city that made SoCal famous. I look forward to seeing y'all next week for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.